Welcome to the moment that changed everything, where we interview notable creative people to gain insights into how they got started and learn more about the moments that shaped them and their careers. Daniel Brooks is a legend of the Canadian stage, is a director, writer, and actor, with as many awards as my kids have participation medals, including the Chalmers Award, three Dora Maver Moore Awards, Pauline McGibbon Award, Edinburgh Fringe First Award, and the Eleanor and Lou Seminovich Prize in Theatre. My claim to fame is that I went to high school with Kathy Seminovich. This episode has been brought to you by the National Advertising Challenge. Are you creative? Do you love a challenge? NAC is a brief-based competition where brands ask for big ideas to help solve their biggest marketing challenges. Leading creative directors judge the ideas. Winners get the cash. Learn more at nationaladvertisingchallenge.com. You've performed in front of audiences. You've had first night plays. I'm assuming you're not that nervous for today's uh, program. Well, we've just been chatting, so... <laughs> Um, you never know, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Um, you can feel that uh, you're not nervous um, as a performer or as a director, and then boom, suddenly something can trigger something in your body that makes your, your hands shake and your heart beat fast and your sweat come to soak your shirt. And... <laughs> but I'm not feeling that way right now at all. It may happen later. I'll let you know. So uh, let's talk about pressure for a second about being just, you know, in terms of an actor, a writer, and um, um, a director. Are there horrible pressures that you get on an opening night? Um, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm um, a coward on opening night. Um, and it's... Maybe it's it's too much to get into this, but I will. Um, there's two different kinds of shows that one does. Um, when I ran my own company, the kind of show that I did was um, opening night was just a part of a, a lengthy process. So that the show that we were opening in Toronto would be done again in Montreal or somewhere else. So that um, as a producer and director, I was never finished with my work. Okay. Um, so I continued to work. So opening night was always interesting to me because the actors, of course, feel differently opening night. Uh, it's a different context. They have different people in the audience. Um, of course, the idea that a reviewer will be there has intense, puts intense pressure on them. Um, so sometimes things happen opening night that can be helpful. Uh, new things happen. And as a director, I like to be there to capture them and try to understand how to use them. There's another kind of performance that happens when you're, direct, when you're directing a show that is produced by another company where the work kind of ends opening night. So I don't go because I can't do anything with what I see. And all I see are the things that I want to cultivate or move here or edit or change. So I only see things that make me unhappy and I can't do anything about it. So I don't go. So after an opening night of a play that you've directed, mm -hmm. do you continue to try and improve it as you go along? Um, as I say, when, if I'm the producer, I can do that. But as a director? 
by by producer I mean that it's my company. Oh, okay. And so that I have a different way of communicating with the actors. Um, I have a different way of engaging them over a longer period of time. Whereas if I haven't hired those actors, the rules are a bit different. They just they're a bit different. Um, Union actors can only rehearse after opening a certain number of hours. Um, but if I have a long relationship with an actor, I can talk to them anytime about the work that they're doing. Is it more difficult to do a union production than a non-union production? Well, I do only union. I mean, you can't really do a non-union production anymore. It's just that there's a lot more leeway when you're working with people who the best way I can put it is they're your friends. You're sharing a life with them. So you're kind of in it together, and the rules don't really matter because there's lots of love and respect. So uh, the rules really only matter when um, there's not a profound trust between people. If you had a choice, be it acting, directing, producing, writing, what's the first love? Are they all children? Um, I, I, I'd say that, uh, yeah, they're all children, sure. Um, the healthiest thing for me is directing. That's when I'm happiest. Um, and I think it's partially to do with uh, being in a position in which the triumphs of other people are your triumphs. So um, there's something that happens to the ego that it relaxes for me. I know that doesn't happen to all directors, but it happens to me where I um, am in a position of, of taking great joy in, in people's uh, inventions, in their liberation, in their, in their achievements. And you celebrate their success or are you dictatorial when you help when you're uh, directing? I'm collaborative. I'm collaborative. I, um, in the end, I, I make my choices. But, uh, uh, and uh, I tend to give actors a lot of room to explore, even if I feel that they're going slightly down the wrong track. If I feel that they need to do that, then I'll let them. And sometimes um, you have, you know, the, the great lions, the actors who are really quite great, um, you need to be a bit of a lion tamer. You, you need some skill and some um, patience and, uh, shall we say, technique in terms of how to allow their great talent to blossom and at the same time work within the parameters of your vision. Mm -hmm. So it takes, it takes uh, some skill. Now you came from two highly creative parents. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, your dad gave me one of my first writing jobs when I started in the industry. Now not that that should be the benchmark of his creativity, okay? It's not meant that way at all. But did your parents encourage um, you and Adam to explore the arts, or would they have preferred doctors? Well, I would have preferred a doctor. In fact, I started my uh, education in the sciences, and I was heading towards medical school. What changed? Because um, this could be the moment that changed everything. Uh, I wasn't ready. I just wasn't ready. I wasn't, uh, I needed to learn how to live. And, uh, uh, and immersing myself in medical school wouldn't um, allow me to do that. Um, I felt I had uh, huge deficits in other parts of my life that I had to But you've been, what, with. all of 22 when you came up with this? 
Yeah, but you know, um, I didn't have a happy adolescence. Um, lots of people don't. Yeah, no, I... um, and <laughs> um, you know, my my parent, those creative people, had a very um, contentious separation when I was fourteen or fifteen, and um, and I had to kind of, and I had huge impact on me, and I think that I had to. Um, learn how to be, and also I had a strange adolescence. I had a very strange adolescence in which, you know, I grew up in a middle class Toronto Jewish world, the same world that you grew up yeah. in. Yeah. Our parents were friends. Your mother was such a beautiful woman. Um, Thank she you. was really, I so admired her. Your mom was my teacher at, at Temple Emmanuel. At Temple Emmanuel. She, and she directed the Quorum yeah, uh, play every year. It was one of the reasons why I kind of enjoyed going, although, of course, I complained bitterly. But she was fun. <laughs> yeah. Oh, she was, yeah, she was, she was loads of fun. But, um, you know, very troubled, uh, a very troubled and anxious person. And, oh, I wouldn't know that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, she maybe was born in the wrong time and definitely married the wrong guy. Um, she had two perfect sons, of course, but uh, <laughs> that couldn't help her through her problems. She was very creative, and, and, and perhaps she, as a woman, would have been better having been born, uh, let's say, in 20 years, when everything's going to be perfect. You know, um, um, I was once at your house when we were very young, and I recall that there was a book on the bookshelf, which was Adam to Daniel. And I figured that's how you guys got your names. Uh-huh. So anyway, it's just one of those things that... Did that you nab that book? Because I never saw it. Yeah, no. Yeah. I, I, I recall it because I went home and said to my mom, is that how Naomi got, or Mrs. Brooks, is that how Mrs. Brooks got their names? And my mother, of course, said, no, of course not. You know. Um, and my mother was very fond of her. Uh-huh. Like, you know, I recall... Um, my mother admired your mother in a way that was rare. Yeah. The... Anyway, thank you. Now, um, you've had an enormously successful career. Um, and more awards than you can shake a stick at, you know. Um, but if you were in your teens or late teens and sort of just post-high school, what would you advise people about following their dreams? Because you changed your dream. You were thinking of sciences and perhaps medical school and then you change to be, hey, maybe this is something else I'd rather explore. Um, what would you tell someone? What would you tell yourself if you were 18 again? Um, stick to the medical school plan. <laughs> um, it'll, it'll work out. Um, well, I think things, you know, uh, work out either way. Um, I don't, there's a lot I would say, uh, and then um, also I would, I would lead with saying that anything that I say is purely personal and uh, may or may not apply. Um, I think every journey is, uh, is unique and uh, the influences on every journey are um, unpredictable and um, remarkable in so many ways, and I'm sure, you know, if any one of us were to put some thought into what pushed us this way or that, uh, it would be an interesting story. Um, that said, you know, I, I, I often counsel people to, uh, young people, to 
not worry about career, not get caught up in career thinking. Um, that um, that the work that you do is 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 going to be partially how you're spending your life. Um, whether you work nine to five or whether you work a sixty-hour week or an eighty-hour week, that's a big part of your life. Um, and the people that you meet meet and the friends that you make will often be through your work and often even um, the man or woman you might marry uh, will often be met in the workplace. And I think that finding the right people to spend your uh, precious time with is probably the most important thing. And I think that's what I did. I think uh, I was drawn to the theater because I needed to be with um, people who were also drawn to the theater, who, who had similar needs and interests um, and passions. And as a result, you know, the people that I met in my 20s have become lifelong partners in my journey in life um, and have inspired me and helped me and um, I continue to be in dialogue. Uh, I have a dear, dear friend, Daniel McIver, who is now doing his master's in performance studies at U of T. And I speak to him once or twice a day. Sometimes I'll answer the phone and he's immediately complaining about uh, uh, some paper he read, some post-structuralist Frenchman has written about something he doesn't even understand and he will rail, why can't they use human language? And, um, and I have these conversations with him every day and it's as if I'm doing my MA. Um, I, I've, you know, I've read a lot. I've, I've been more interested in certain kinds of ideas than he has, so a lot of it's new to him. And I get to revisit some of these ideas and writers and and I'm moving through his master's program with him. And it's not only an education for me, but it's kind of intimacy, kind of wonderful intimacy. If he gets an A, I send him $10. <laughs> <laughs> um, how long have you known Daniel? Um, I'd say f almost 40 years. Almost 40? 40, 40, yeah, 40 almost. And how did you meet him originally? It was theater, it was... Theater, absolutely, yeah. Um, I had a friend, I met him briefly um, after he had opened a one-man show that a friend of mine produced, um, but uh, he doesn't remember meeting me. He was, you know, coming out of the dressing room to meet his crowd. Um, I had a kind of interesting... Um, he wrote a play that was done at the Tarragon Theatre, his first play, and it was not well received, and critics often can't discern between bad writing and bad direction. And the play was not well directed, and I could see the talent in the play. And I, I'd never met him, and I, I wanted to call him and say, you know, uh, being a few years older than him, um, I wanted to encourage him. Um, but I never got around to it. Now, the play was called Some, Somewhere I Have Never Traveled. And at that time, I was working with Don McKellar and Tracy Wright on a play that had a play within it that we were satirizing Canadian plays. And that play was called Sometime Come Often. And um, it was a sort of satire of a kind of Canadian play that people were doing. Um, 
about in a, about an East Coast family, and it's usually there's a drunken father who's recently died, and the authorial voice who's been living in the big city is often gay, <laughs> comes back home, and the old girlfriend's there, and the drunken lout of a brother is there, and there's some secret that comes out. It's, it's like it's almost like a Tennessee Williams play. Anyway, we were kind of making fun of that in this play, and Daniel came, and we'd never met, and he saw it. Um, did he think you were yeah, making fun of? He did. He did, and we weren't, but. Um, and he insists to this day that, that, that we were. And we met afterwards and then became collaborators and friends for... Even though that contentious meeting, <laughs> which was, I'm going to wring your neck for well, making well, fun of me? <laughs> he also had never seen a play constructed in the way that we constructed that play. And in fact, no one was really doing theater like that in Toronto. Um, so he was also overwhelmed by uh, what he was seeing. He was really impressed and inspired by what he was seeing and by the three of us on stage. He, so he wanted to meet us, and he, and he also brought thought I was really cute. I <laughs> uh, had to... Uh, he brought that up? He, yes, he, of course, yeah, of course, he did, and uh, I elegantly declined his uh, advances, uh, and we, we became, uh, you know, very, very good friends, and he's the godfather of my... Uh, daughters and how old are your daughters 28 and 23 and there you said they're in Nova Scotia yes one is actually living there and the other finished her she's a finished a creative writing program at Concordia University and so now she's in a bit of a COVID uh, dilemma and doesn't quite know where to go so she's hanging out with her sister and writing but she's writing yeah and are you reading her work um sometimes uh I think she's great. I, I think she's really quite remarkable. So, you know, how to uh, turn talent as a writer into uh, a life as a writer is another story. Um, so right. in, in that regard, the, the advice, write. Write and, and try to find the time where you can let people see it, like have the courage to let people see it. Um, share. <laughs> is she finding this, and I'm asking a question about her, mm -hmm. you know, um, is she finding this time highly creative or not? Um, she's a highly creative person. So is this good for her? I mean, because uh, there's no distractions. Yeah, I think she would rather have, she was planning to go to Mexico and, you know, find a little cabana or something and write for five or six months. Right. So I, I have a feeling she would have done that. I have a feeling that she would have found a way to write. Uh, regardless so um, she's just uh, she's um, my brother says that that you know of all the people in our family she seems the most naturally the artist she would always pick up a piece of paper and draw um, write she wrote from a very young age uh, she just has a it's a natural she it's it's how she processes the world I think and your other daughter um, she's uh, has a partner who she's been with for seven or eight years. They have a cidery, and she's interested in farming and uh, and food security. What they call food security. What is food security? Um, 
the I guess it it's the um, uh, creating uh, the uh, security of, of, of for old people to have access to good food. Oh, interesting. And she's been in Nova Scotia for a long time? She went to Dalhousie. She right. graduated at Dalhousie and stayed there with her. And your daughter was at Concordia and then went to Nova Scotia? To be with her sister, yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. Um, what do actors say is your best quality as a director? Um, hmm. I'm not the person to ask, but... Uh, what do you think they've said? Um, well, what I hope they would say, and I guess I've had this experience, um, I've heard this from... Uh, uh, they feel heard. I, I, I do think that um, I've always, um, quite naturally, I think, um, treated... Uh, actors like artists like human beings i even treat sorry that's my phone going off somewhere okay. but um i i, I even, guess the question is do you want to get it no <laughs> uh even as a teacher i i <clears throat> i i do i think without thinking about it really uh, i have a curio a natural curiosity in the student or in the actor um in what they're doing and why they're doing it and what they're thinking about. And I guess I also have a faith in the capacity of, of, of all individuals in, in, in their creative capacity. I, I have a faith in that. And, and so it, you know, with, with a certain amount of, of patience, um, often you can uh, help that uh, creative capacity to emerge. So I think that actors feel um, seen and heard by me. What would a producer say is your best quality as a director? I put bums in seats. <laughs> <laughs> Serious? Um, Do you have groupies? Groupies? No, I don't. In well, if you theater, have bums in seats, you yeah. do. <laughs> um, I'm oblivious to that. I've always been a, a bit oblivious to how people see me. Um, I guess it's just not something I, I, I think about too much. I probably just worry about it rather than think about it. Um, so I don't... Uh, um, I've, I had groupies once. When I was doing a show, I was performing a solo show that I had written, and uh, I was doing a tour of Argentina. And... Um, in those days, I sorry, I, I made the uh, show with a musician, a pianist, a guy named Peter Dick, and he couldn't come with me. So he made a little tape uh, for the music, which was semi-improvised. And I would go in each town I, or city I went to, I'd find a pianist, and we'd work for two or three days, and then I'd do the show. And it was very popular, and it was a big hit. And particularly in an international festival in Cordoba, in the north of Argentina. And I had groupies then. <laughs> <laughs> they came to every performance? Um, yeah, and there were people like, waiting outside for me after the show, and um, beautiful young Argentine women. And it was, um, it was a f special moment in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and when was the special moment? Uh, I think I was 27. Cool. 28, yeah. Um, 
Is there a, rev a review of your work that stands out, whether good or bad? Um, well, the bad ones are, you, you know, they all stand out. They're all like lined up, ready to scream at me again and again and again. Um, I don't think about them too much anymore. Um, I, there was a, a review um, of a play that I'd written and co-directed, I think, at a festival in Montreal, an international festival in Montreal. And the review was in French. And the writer talked about my work in the context of Western theater. He recognized the influences on the play. He talked about the structure and the choices I was making. And it was so, and I don't even remember if he liked it or didn't like it. It was so respectful and so um, uh, capable in its um, objective view of what I was, that I was serious, I was seriously trying to create something. And that experience is very rare. And I think it's not only rare for me, but it's rare for most people because most critics don't work or think that way. Is it a case of most critics aren't trained properly? Or is it just opinion and they're trying to sell their story? I think it's a combination. Um, I think they don't believe the readership is interested. Um, so it's also an education of the readership. Uh, we don't have a, a theater culture, really. Um, and today, I think that um, theater rev reviewing has become terribly politicized, so that um, the mm, intention, politics of, uh, of a play seem far more important than the um, artistry or the actual um, construction of it. Um, you know, there's a, in most academics, you're not even allowed, you're not even really encouraged to, to talk about intention. Um, so I think that that, that has become a, a, a serious um, obstacle in uh, reviewers' ability to go uh, deeper into what they're witnessing. We have a show about creativity. Where do you get your inspiration from? Um, each and every breath. Uh, start there. Um, I've, uh, you know, to, to uh, you know, the cliche, I, I stand on the shoulders of giants. Um, I have had a great privilege of, uh, in my work, having had the time to engage with the, the, the so many great writers and artists um, from the past and present. Um, so, you know, that's a place where I've gained enormous amount of inspiration. But, um, uh, um, so, you know, writers like Samuel Beckett and, and Chekhov, I'm reading Proust now, I find it absolutely uh, astonishing and mesmerizing. Um, Has it been a lifelong passion of reading? No, not until in my early 20s. I somehow, I mean, I did read, but not 
passionately. And then I came across um, uh, Crime and Punishment. And it was the first book that I'd read that I somehow felt uh, that he was writing about things that I thought about or that really concerned me. Um, and that I didn't really know that that was possible until I read that book. And after I read that book, I had an endless hunger for it, for a reflection of, of human experience that I could understand or um, be confused about. Um, so uh, I've never really been that interested in whodunits and in, in a kind of entertainment that I don't judge it. I just am not interested in it. We are so polar opposites. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, now let's say in terms of you're directing a play and you have there's so many th moving parts how do you decide who does the set how do I decide who, who the, does the set because who, the set is going to be an extension of the writing it's going to be extension of where your actors are playing you know what's the stage like how do you help someone or how do you hire someone so you have your vision whether directing or even as a playwright. Because this, I know we have it in our business in terms of, you know, every little thing's important, we feel. Mm -hmm. um, but yours is a moving object. You know, we get to capture, our, capture ours on film. Every day you have something different. So how do you get that person that's going to have the vision that's going to take your writing and make it feel like it's what it's supposed to be? Um. Well, it's, it's similar. I mean, when I was starting out, I stumbled into the designers that I like to work with. Um, it just sort of happened. Um, and um, also when you're starting out, you're, you're, you're creating a kind of aesthetics and a way of thinking about theater with people. So you're growing together. So it's not as if you're entirely separate people. Um, later on, um, let's say now, um, if I were to hire a designer for a particular project, I would think uh, a lot about um, the kind of show I want to do. Um, now, I, I can look at that from so many different angles. It can be entirely aesthetic, but usually for me it's not. Like I. Like it, I want this show to be shiny and um, 50s kind of, uh, you know, I rarely approach it that way. It has more to do with um, how I imagine the play inhabiting space, how the actors and space relate to the audience, for instance, or to the architecture of the building. So if I'm thinking architecturally, in terms of the building itself, there are certain designers who will more effectively engage with me. Okay. Um, if I'm thinking about a really tight little space in which little pieces move around and I want that kind of dynamic where there's kind of claustrophobia and that might require a different kind of designer. And it also depends on how much money we have and how much time we have and where that designer's skills meet those needs. How many designers have you worked with? Is it? Not a not, I, I, I try to work with the same. Guys all the time. I, I, I prefer to, yeah. Um, 
otherwise you can run into trouble misunderstandings and uh, um, it, it can be difficult um, you know you want to be with working with people who are not trying to prove anything to you but are interested in developing this um, thing that we're creating together that that's what they're interested in let's change topics for a second um, obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic what do you see the future of live theater? So in terms of advertising now, um, we're telling our clients, you know, six months from today, assume that um, everyone over 40 will have received a vaccine. Doesn't mean that everything's, you know, it's just they've received a vaccine, so people will start to feel a little better about themselves, about going out. Of, What's going to happen to live theater? Will people return? Will the age ranges change? I mean, by the same token, we could talk about the CFL, whether it has a future, or the NHL. You know, um, it's an entire entertainment industry of live theater. How do you see it playing out? Um, gee, I don't know. Um, I haven't been putting a lot of thought into that. Um, I don't know how much more work I'm going to be doing. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think so. Know, I props our audience needs a bit of a <laughs> context with this. Um, you have stage four cancer. You look great. Yeah, I feel good. <laughs> I guess you're thinking of life now in terms of how much time is there. Are you thinking of life in terms of? every moment's important or is it a time for reflection and making yourself all of the above all of the above i mean the, the most important thing is in um uh cherishing every day um but what exactly that means requires reflection um because it, that's just a those are just a few words thrown together cherish every day what does it actually mean, and how do you cherish, and what, what is there of value in the day? Um, that's what I uh, spend a lot of time reflecting on. Um, so you that, wake up in the morning energized? It's another day? Um, I, have, I have things I have to do in the morning. I meditate in the morning. So getting up and moving my body and and focusing um, on um, on how I am moving my body. Um, I meditate. Um, I have a very um, committed practice, so that's where my focus is. Um, and it's, you know, based in, in a lot of uh, Buddhist philosophy. I wouldn't call myself a Buddhist, but uh, it's my meditation is based in a lot of uh, Buddhist philosophy, so um, it's not about uh, necessarily being excited about the day, but about acknowledging the day and um, dedicating myself as best I can to um, being in service uh, to others. Have you connected more with old friends? Yeah, yeah. Um, you Are know, you writing? Um, I am writing. I'm writing a piece about meditation and cancer. Um, um, it's sort of about, ultimately, about mind. Um, uh, uh, so uh, that's something that, I, that I'm writing. Uh, 
in terms of you know my friendships, uh, you know people are incredibly uh, generous, and uh, when when called upon to be generous, and I've had enormous amount of support and love in this now two almost two and a half year journey since my diagnosis. Um, but I'm, I'm very determined to um, speak openly about it. I, um, the word cancer scares people, and not that it should or shouldn't, but I think less fear is always better. So for me to be able to talk about it, I hope, um, helps uh, people uh, um, understand that they, they don't have to be afraid. Um, it's a reality. Um, what does it mean? And how long will I live? I don't know. So in terms of the future, I don't even really think that much about it. It, it has impact on how I make plans, I guess. Um, but to be relieved of, of making plans, um, I'm beginning to realize is not everybody gets that in life. Um, to wake up and not necessarily know what the next two weeks are going to be. And there are some great um, uh, benefits to that, um, to, to allowing me to experience life differently, think differently. Um, it's like being a different person almost. Really? Yeah. Um, are you happy with the person you've changed to? Yeah, sure. Sure I am. And is your writing as good as it was? I know that's a weird question to ask, but... Um, I can't answer that. I really don't know. Um, the bigger question for me is whether I have the um, energy or the desire to apply myself to the work. Because... Uh, you know, writing requires consistent effort. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm a little shaky on these days. I'd, I'd rather make myself some nice um, vegetable dish, uh, go for a walk with an old friend, um, meditate, read Proust. Uh, there are other things I'd rather do right now than writing. So that's my struggle. What else are you doing? during the day? Um, well... Do you love music? Do you... I love music. I... What uh, were you listening to in the car on the way over? Um, I wasn't listening to music in the car. Um, I was uh, trying to find my way through that Eglinton mess. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was the last thing I listened to? I listened to those beautiful Bach cello sonatas recently. I think that was the last thing I listened to. And I like to dance. So uh, the last thing I danced to was, uh, I, I listened to Radiohead a lot. Really? I love Radiohead. I danced to them a lot. Um, I, I, I listened to uh, Talking Heads. That was the last thing I listened to. Yeah. Uh, love music. I play guitar. I. Um, um, not daily. I borrowed a friend's sitar. Really? I'm trying to learn. Yeah. <laughs> well, as far, as far as I can remember, it was always Ravi, Sam, um, Ravi Shankar. Shankar's greatest hit. Because uh -huh. you could tell the difference between one and another. So it was just one hit. So um, 
Um, I think I saw a photograph of you playing trumpet. Yeah. That's... Uh, I haven't played uh, in years, but I, I was a huge Miles Davis fan. Um, and when I was discovering Miles Davis in my early 20s, I had a pal, and we were walking along College Street, and there was a trumpet in the store, in, the sto- in a window of a, of a uh, consignment store. And I stopped and looked at it, and he took me by the shoulders, and he opened the door, and he threw me in and said, you're not coming out until you have that trumpet. So I bought that trumpet, and there was a guy, I can't remember his uh, real name, a Jewish boy, um, but his stage name was Malcolm Tent, and uh, he had a band, I can't remember what it was called. Anyway, he gave me lessons, and I learned how to play the trumpet, and I would play, and my father had a place in the Hockley Valley, and I used to love to play these beautiful open notes that would echo down the valley. And, uh, really? <laughs> yeah. But you've got to play trumpet regularly because... Yeah, because yeah. your embouchure has to stay strong. Yeah. Um, the talk, topic of race and diversity is flooding everything that we see now in terms of news. Um, um, and it's been an interesting time, and we find it in our industry as well, because things are changing. Do you feel that if you might write a play that you'd have to um, be cognizant of the fact that we have to have more people of color or more women? And I give this to you simply because we're starting to produce a TV show. So we made a quick trailer that we're showing the network and um, there's comics generally in it and we know that just because of the number of comics that are going to be there, we're going to have Two-thirds are going to be white male, then there's, it's going to be a very division of the rest. And they've asked us to make it politically correct. Mm-hmm. So we had to change our trailer. And I said, guys, it doesn't matter. It's just a couple of comics for a couple of seconds <clears throat> in a trailer. Do you feel that you're going to have to change your characters now that if you would write? Or would you change? Um. Well, there are a number of questions. One is is um, what's producible at this point. So, um, yeah, you know whether I'll get any interest in uh, a white man looking at his belly button, um, talking about cancer is uh, is an interesting question. I mean, in that particular piece that I'm working on, I do address uh, a question of being a white man, um, um, and I do so in a ironic way at times but um so there's the question of you know is a work producible um if it's not addressing or at least giving opportunity to uh diverse um artists or voices um that in the theater world is a given um so uh whether you you feel it's fair or not fair is irrelevant it's unless you want to take on that fight, which uh, I would not advise anybody to do. Um, the more interesting question, I think, is whether or not, um, is, is, how, is what you're writing about and whether or not such a major um, social question is a part of uh, the concern of your writing. Um, because it is a huge social issue um, that is having impact on more and more people 
and um, do you think your characters might change because of that? Um, yeah, well, I think characters, you know, changing because of Trump. I mean, you know, the world changes, so um, change is the first principle of, of life. So, um, uh, what that means for for characters to change is is a more, you know, is a lifelong question. What is a character? You know, what constitutes character in a play? Um, the very idea of what constitutes character can separate one writer from another. So, um, uh, but I, 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 it's it's difficult as a white person to engage sometimes. Um, I think a lot of us, us speaking on behalf of all white people, thank you, <laughs> um, feel a little threatened. Uh, we don't understand why. What I didn't do anything. I've always been a good boy. Um, it's all irrelevant. Um, there have been, you know, uh, 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 an imbalance in power in our society, and I think there's that's just it's not arguable. So yeah, no, completely. Not. How one deals with it certainly is arguable, um, but um, it's happening and. Um, What's happening is a is a very difficult question too. Like, what actually is happening? Well, there there are kind of quotas in work now in workplaces. Um, they don't use the word quota, but uh, I think it's applicable. Absolutely, yeah. And I I think in some cases they're really justified. They just I sometimes am concerned that they're not. Uh, considered enough or that the dialogue is not thorough enough um, around certain industries where um, quotas in hiring need to be measured against training, for instance. I know for us, it's, I, we don't hide behind it, but it's, you know, best people play. You know, you find the best person for the job regardless of, of, of whom it is. And um, what I find interesting now is that we have clients that ask about, you know, what's the diversity of your staff? Which has absolutely nothing to do with the work, really, in the end. I mean, we're, we're, we provide a product for someone to be able to, to use. But I, find it, I just find it fascinating now, you know, in terms of um, expectation and what's supposed to be done, yet our job is to find the best people that we can to work and do the job. So it's kind of, you know, we have that balance that, you know, that we, we have to talk to our clients now about it, mm -hmm. which I've never had before. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, what do you get a kick out of these days? Um, talking heads, <laughs> riding my bike, um, gardening, uh, uh, water. You have a garden in the city? No, I I, I did some uh, a little bit of gardening um, this summer. Um, built a, 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 a planting big planting bed, and we uh, at the end of the year planted some garlic bulbs. I'm curious to see what happens to them. Um, 
being outdoors and engaged with the processes of nature, uh, I, th I think that, that I've become, that's, that's what happened to me in the last five months. I just sat in the comings and goings of birds and bees and um, thrilled to it. I don't know if you know, but we have an apiary. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We have 15 hives in the, just on uh -huh. the other side of that wall. Oh, yeah. Um, we now have coyotes and um, um, gophers, uh -huh. about 900,000 bees, wow. all of whom make about 1,000 pounds of honey for us every year. And what started is a bit of a, uh, we, one of our video editors came to work and he put a beehive in his backyard. He had his tiny little backyard, a little bigger than this table. And he had three children on the age of five. So his darling spouse gave him the choice of either the, you know, the, uh, the hive left or he left. Uh -huh. So he was telling us at lunch one day. And so I said, well, bring it to work. And now I think we're in our sixth year of making honey. Wow. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it great watching how it all happens and unfolds and... And we've built a viewing platform, so you got to come back and see it. Uh -huh. So people don't love putting on the bee suit. So we built a viewing platform to write in the APR uh -huh. so everyone gets to see it. Um, Daniel, I can't tell you how much of a pleasure this was. Great. I, this was enjoyable. It was interesting. I learned a lot. And will you come back one day? Sure. Okay. Daniel, thanks so much. Thank you. This episode has been brought to you by the National Advertising Challenge, North America's only brief-based challenge that sends winners to Cannes, France.